0: Today's episode of Undesigned comes to you from the land of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. We acknowledge and pay respects to all Elders past, present and emerging. Have we started recording? Oh, cool. We're already recording anyway. Yeah. Cheeky boy. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome to Undesign. I'm your host, Costa, and thank you so much for joining me on this mammoth task to untangle the world's wicked problems and redesign new futures. I know firsthand that we can all bring something to these big challenges, so listen in and see where you fit in the solution as we go on to Undesign tourism and travel. While we can see how COVID-19 has not been the great equalizer that some thought it would be. There is some aspect that we've all been affected by, which is travel and tourism. As a result of the world's nations closing their borders to each other in order to contain and control the virus, many of us have ourselves or know people who are now unable to be with loved ones to celebrate or to mourn loss together. We are also really seeing the tangible impacts of our own collective behaviour as well. Countries like China and India's nitrogen dioxide emissions have decreased and that's as a result of burning less fossil fuels. Venice's waters started to look cleaner due to the reduction in traffic in their canals. Are these changes evidence of a world that is finally healing itself from our overconsumption? While these environmental gains should be celebrated, though, there's a big shadow of a question that looms. Is sustainable travel and tourism a zero-sum game? Broadly defined as the economic, environmental and cultural impacts of travel, now and into the future, it feels like whatever change you make in one of these aspects, there are unintended consequences on other aspects. So, for example, if we stop travel altogether, we adversely affect many millions of jobs in tourism-dependent economies. If destinations promote their sustainability practices, research shows that this actually stimulates more revenue and tourism. But what's the threshold of tourism before it becomes too much and actually undermines its own sustainable objectives? Joining us for today's episode of Undesign is Edmund Morris. Ed is a former economist with USAID and now CEO of Equator Analytics, a data-driven analytics firm focused on this question of sustainable travel and tourism, which is now more relevant than ever. Ed really is the best value tour guide you could ask for in this conversation. He's at once a source of knowledge about the travel and tourism industry and a natural comedian full of anecdotes and weird metaphors to wrap your head around. And much like a world tour. Ed and I make a lot of stops in today's chat. We talk about the history of tourism and travel, paradox inherent in being sustainable in our efforts, and perhaps most surprisingly, we talk about the social value of travel. All of this leads us to set a new challenge for ourselves. How can we as everyday travelers rewrite our own relationship with travel? Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. we're here to talk about travel and tourism, and particularly sustainable travel and tourism.
1: So, just as a starting point, how would you define those concepts? So, I think you captured it pretty well in your introduction. Um, we generally refer to sustainable travel and tourism as as being um, comprised of three components or elements. Mm-hmm. Um, one is economic, the other is environmental, and the third is social or cultural. And those are kind of capture the the major elements of what we construe and what the, the industry uses as sustainable tourism today.
0: Okay. And how long has it been a thing? Um, it feels recent, but
1: I don't know. Yeah. Not, not long. Okay. And I, I think, I mean, relative to the history of travel and tourism, mm. not long at all. So like we've been, you know, as humans, we've been traveling for millennia, but you know, tourism as we know it today and travel and tourism as, as an industry mm. only really emerged in in the modern sense in sort of 18th century. Yeah, and right. what we would call modern travel or contemporary travel began really in the 1940s and 50s after the second world war. So like right. the idea of sustainability within this sector mm. sector probably only around 20 years. Right. So, okay. So you're
0: saying that tourism and travel, as we've understood it in the modern context has only, has not even hit 200 years or just over 200, just, it's probably, just under 200 years. Yeah. It's probably years. just
1: passing the 200 year mark. Wow. Um, so Thomas Cook was the first travel agent back in the early 1800s oh, um, who started. Bit. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it was, um, um, who started traveling with people, I think, primarily to deal with um, abstinence from alcohol. So the first travel oh. agent, I might be wrong about this, but I think it was um, getting people to try and quit drinking. And, through travel? Uh, yeah, through, through um, taking people around Birmingham and Loughborough and, and different parts of England. Wow. And then that is the first, like, former travel agent and tour yeah. operator. Yeah, yeah, And then Thomas Cook started to expand their um, trips abroad and kind of take people further afield, so across Europe mm. to kind of relive the Grand Tour, which was the kind of the in thing to do for nobility um, around the 18th century, Yeah, but had never been, you know, organized as a kind of professional experience by an operator. Man. So yeah, so it's it's not, the industry's not brand new. Yeah. Um, it's not like the tech industry. Because we, yeah, like you said, we've been traveling, f- uh,
0: you know, since we could document history and human movement, but... What, what I guess, what is it that characterizes modern travel and tourism? Like, why is the
1: line, like, where is the line drawn? Why is it drawn in the 1800s? So I I, I would guess one of the ways we define modern travel and tourism is that it's now becoming commercially organized. So okay. it wasn't just done for the sake of, of right. um, a necessity yeah. or for the extraordinarily rich. Mm. So in the Roman mm. period, it would, be, would have been nobility. And yeah. then through much of the Middle Ages, you had, like, crusades or conquest mm. or pilgrimage. So there were there were fundamental kind of life reasons for travel, right, th- rightly or wrongly. But around the 18th, 19th century, you began to see it become commercially organized where people were making money off mm. of working within the travel and tourism industry. So um, as the kind of industrial revolution kicks in, mm. we start hopping on trains, you know, getting into cars. We start finding transportation across longer distances, much easier, much, much cheaper. Yeah. And it becomes more and more accessible. But it isn't really until the kind of jet set age in the nineteen fifties, right. the end of the second world war, where we start to see travel becoming more accessible. It's still not particularly right. accessible. So like in the nineteen fifties, an airline ticket, a short flight across the US mm. would have cost, I think, a secretary her entire month's wages. Oh my god. Just one way. Yeah. So flight is still really expensive in the nineteen fifties. Mm. Um, it's not it's called the golden age of travel, but in reality it was much more dangerous. Yeah, you know, smoking on a plane. Was smoking not on a plane. Nice. Yeah, yeah. It sounds maybe kind of cool, but yeah, in reality, it was much more turbulent. Mm. Flights were pretty unpleasant. You know, you weren't sure when you were going to be taking off. So like, it it wasn't a great time to be flying. Mm. Um, although I think you were treated a little less like cattle than you are today.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I guess it. It sounds like one of those concepts that gets romanticized with hindsight. You know, like the yeah. golden age of anything, the Halcyon days. It's like, oh, you could do more on planes, but it's like. Actually, do you remember how uh, tumultuous and turbulent, turbulent, literally mm. the journey was back then? So that's interesting. So we've got that age that kind of kicks off in the 50s. And, you know, I'm noticing two things there where it's like it's modern travel is kind of characterized by not necessarily just traveling out of necessity, but this idea of traveling and visiting for leisure and having um, and being able to do so in shorter periods of time because of technology. So yeah. obviously, technology has had a big Impact in that, but it's interesting that even with a fifty-year lifespan from then to where we are now, or fifty-plus years, we're already talking about sustainable travel. Yeah. So where did this idea come from? I'm, I'm, my feeling is that if we're talking about it, then we've noticed the adverse impacts of it.
1: Yeah, so travel exploded pretty quickly. Like right. it, its rise has been meteoric, and and what we've seen is that so back in the 1950s, you had around 20 million. Total arrivals around the world. So, twenty million people. Total arrivals. Okay. 20, start again. In the nineteen fifties, we were around twenty million tourist arrivals mm. in, in a given year. Now, what we had in twenty nineteen, the end of twenty nineteen, was was one point four billion in in a year. Uh, so whoa. that's um a staggering acceleration. To kind yeah. of put that into some form of perspective, if if every person is a second, mm-hmm. it's really the difference between two hundred and eighty days and forty four years. Oh. So like, we're in this huge um, growth in in the interest in travel and tourism and that that's primarily because people are wealthier than mm. they were mm-hmm. 70 years ago flights have become, become cheaper um infrastructures improved so you know it's easier to get around than it ever has been um, right. in the history of the world so people are traveling a lot more mm. and as a result of that over the last decade in particular we've begun to see the strains of growth kick in so we are no longer managing the mm. numbers and the volume of people that we used to be able to, yep. because there were less of them. Right. So you know, you probably noticed airports got busier in the last twenty years. Yeah. That, that you know, when you go to a tourist destination that you think is off the beaten path, there are still hundreds of people there, tens of thousands of Instagram photos of it. Mm. You're not the f- you're rarely the first person to visit a place. Yes. Um, or you rarely feel like you have the entire place to yourself. Right. And that, that is because there are simply so many people traveling. Mm. There's so much more congestion. Um, and we haven't done a great job as a travel tourism industry of, of actually preparing ourselves for the the masses right. as, as they take to the skies. I mean, I think some of the research my team did at Equator Analytics was we looked at how many people are in the sky at any given time. Right. And so if the sky was a city mm. in the United States last year in 2019... Um, there will have been around 2 million people up in the air at any given time, which, which makes the sky one of America's largest cities.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: So, like, there are a huge number of people, yeah. or they were pre-COVID, um, up in the air at any given point. And that, I think, is indicative of how difficult that is to manage. Yeah. You know, that's thousands of planes simultaneously Far crossing up. paths. If so, the sky was
0: a city, sounds like the title of a poem and poetry anthology or something. Like yeah, that. or like a,
1: a pretty terrible rock <sighs> band album.
0: <laughs> But that's like, that's a really staggering thought to think about two million people in the air at any given time. Is that, have yeah, I understood that correctly, like, yeah, before COVID, before COVID, so now it's plummeted. What does that look like right at this, or you know, in,
1: in the last year? What does that number look like? So, I mean, you're seeing like flight flights to countries, it's probably the easier doing it. It's like, how many arrivals are we seeing drop? We're yep. seeing in most places around a An 80 to 90 percent drop in arrivals, wow, which was the UNWTO's the United Nations World Tourism Organization's worst for like their worst prediction, right? So, when they released their first models back in April, Mm. or their forecasts, should I say, um, their worst case scenario for them was an 80 percent collapse of travel and tourism. We've seen worse than that now, so like we're almost living the worst case scenario, um, with international borders shut, people not flying, yes. And, and yeah, the, the entire travel and tourism industry almost came to a standstill. But, oh uh, but ironically, just a few months before mm. um, COVID hit, the entire industry was talking about the crisis of there being too many people. Yeah, but we're right. not being sustainable. So like we've gone from one extreme to the other. Mm. Um, and I, I think post-COVID, we're going to see you know, a relatively slow recovery. You know, yeah. it's gonna, there's going to be latent demand, but it's still going to be three or four years where we're before we're getting back to 2019 levels. Right. But the question is, do we really want to go back to 2019? Yeah. Is, is that the pinnacle? It of, kind of sounds of like that's toys? a theme
0: throughout the pandemic where we are used to a certain standard, which is quite demanding on resources or on people or on systems. And with COVID enforcing this pause it's now given us time to reflect and be like okay what were we living at a level or a, a rate or just a rhythm that was too much to begin with so you know with this Im, like with this enforced pause on a lot of things we're actually seeing some pretty adverse impacts but we're also seeing some other sort of encouraging impacts right like yeah. you know rege- like there have been numerous instances of the environment kind of sort of starting to heal itself at the moment and you know Less concern about monuments being destroyed and 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 things like that. So it seems like there's is pretty delicate balance to to strike, right?
1: Yeah, and I can actually make this more complicated, right? Um, okay, which is that while we have seen marginal improvements in some mm. ecosystems, Yep. you know, so the, the one that cited quite a lot is you know the waterways in Venice, yes. got better, right? Um, or that you're seeing more wild animals in cities. Yes, let me appear. Now that's true. Yep. But travel and tourism funds. Um, hundreds of millions of dollars worth, or billions of dollars worth, of um, conservation efforts around the world. Right. So without revenue secured yeah. from the travel and tourism industry mm. in Kenya, for instance, mm. um, in the the land of uh, the Maasai Mara, yep. um, where you see huge the world's of the world's largest nature reserves, um, without the funds secured from that, who pays the landowners? Mm. And then how do we make sure those landowners don't appropriate the land for other purposes right so they need to make their money too so well maybe they'll go into farming so you might end up if travel and tourism stalls for too long mm. with an increase in poaching an increase in in oh, attacks sure. on wildlife think about that. on the exploitation of land so you know if land isn't being used for tourists or for conservation or for wildlife well the question is well what should we use it for if you're the mm. government of kenya and you need you know, to create jobs for your people. Right. The question then begs, what should we do with the land? If mm. there are no tourists coming, we need to do something with it. So, okay, we'll farm it. We'll, we'll exploit it for mining. Right. And that isn't just true of Kenya. This is true of Australia. It's true of the United Kingdom, yep. of, of the U.S. I mean, mm. you saw Donald Trump's administration basically sanction the exploitation of, of Alaska's um, uh, natural resources for for the sake of mining, for, for very short-term gains. Right. And tourism is, is one of the barriers almost for um, for the prevention or mm. helps prevent the exploitation of some resources. So it's not as clear cut as, yeah, of course. hey, the environment's better because mm. we're not traveling mm. to places. That may be true mm. um, in terms of like air quality and potentially water consumption. Right. But there were some pretty significant downsides as well. Interesting.
0: I mean, I imagine that the even though we experienced... Uh, sort of border closures at, at sort of different rates. Like the net impact of that, obviously, has resulted in less travel and stuff. But I imagine, like, while there's a collective impact, some economies and nations are, have been way more affected than others. Is that right?
1: yeah, massively. Right. And so,
0: can you speak to that at all?
1: Yeah, sure. So, like, if you take a country like Maldives, okay. So, Maldives um, about 30 years ago was considered to be a least developed country yep. by the World Bank as right. their classification, mm. and that means they're they're among the poorest countries in the world Mm. I think 28 of them and all around you know early 30s so the Maldives decides to move heavily into tourism and it builds its entire economic system on the revenue generated through tourists right so it's establishing these stunning islands and these like turquoise waters these Mm. beautiful corals these wonderful hotel resorts Mm. where high-end paying tourists fly in stay in the resorts and fly out and that becomes around 70 percent of their gdp right so without those tourists the Maldivian economy has collapsed by 70 percent gee whiz so and that's you know just one example of the islands but the island nations you know bahamas aruba mm. um Trinidad and tobago jamaica these are all dependent on on tourism right um because they are very attractive destinations for tourists to go mm. they've built certain tourism models that, that depend on a volume like a certain number of tourists visiting in order to generate revenue so the, the crisis of COVID is huge right. on, on many destinations. And sadly, it is the, some of the poorest destinations that are going to be hit hardest mm. by it as well. It's not, yes, France is the most traveled to destination in the world. They get about 80 million visitors a year. Okay, But that doesn't comprise the majority of the French economy. They right. can depend on other sectors right. to offset their losses in travel and tourism. Yes. The government can do um, support programs and financial assistance initiatives to help The tourism companies in France, Mm. just as you can do that in Australia, but you cannot do that in countries like Jordan and Tunisia or um, South Africa potentially, Mm. or you know some of the other. poor countries like Fiji. Right. It's much harder for them to kind of give the financial assistance. To is that because economies. of the
0: resources they have at their disposal to do things yeah. like that? Right. Yeah.
1: It's just they simply aren't, you know, they're not generating a significant enough GDP right. to be able to to give the assistance to their people, or to the to local businesses. So, you know, this this is a crisis of a magnitude we've never seen in the travel and tourism industry before. But right. it isn't that, you know, once COVID is over, everything's going to go back to normal.
0: Yeah. What's the balance we should be aiming for? Do you think? Or I mean, how, I guess the question I should have asked earlier was, how do you even measure sustainability of travel at that global level? So you know, we brought we touched on these ideas that yeah, there are environmental, economic, and cultural sort of dimensions. How like what are the what are the indicators of each of those aspects?
1: Yeah, this is probably one of the most difficult questions in travel tourism at the moment, right. which is we don't we don't really know. Okay. Um, the industry has built you know sustainability sustainability indicators um for destinations Mm. and you know those are iso 37123 i think okay um but we don't have a very clear mandate for for different cities different you know tourism entities for how to be a sustainable entity so the marriott group Mm. don't have a checklist of what it is to be perfectly sustainable got it and one of the reasons we don't know that is because we don't measure a lot of the key aspects of sustainability so you know, Perth, Australia, where Mm. we are now, they aren't measuring water consumption per tourist. Right. They're not measuring um, the value of their natural heritage sites. Mm. Mm -hmm. So they might know that they exist. They might know that there are water consumption issues related to travel and tourism, Mm. but they're not quantifying it or measuring it on a regular basis, which means when we see changes in the number of arrivals Mm. or the number of tourists, it's very hard to see how that impacts the environmental aspect or the social aspect. Right. And I think like one of the things we did um, at Equator Analytics recently was to kind of make this point is we just we l- look at a sample of five hundred indicators from around the world mm-hmm. measured by ministries of tourism. Yep. And we essentially categorize them by economic, environmental and cultural right. to determine what what we're measuring globally. Yeah. And what matters to us as a travel and tourism industry worldwide. Mm. And we found that 94% of all measures in travel and tourism are economic and financial. Oh, wow. So that just goes to show that, you know, most measures have been designed by and for economists, Mm. not for the purpose of sustainability monitoring or for making the kind of necessary changes. And I think that is going to be the kind of the future of travel and tourism moving over the next few years, which is, are we going to go back to the same system of 2019 Mm. where we're growth oriented? Right. And, you know, primarily interested in financial and economic gains, yeah. or are we going to be kind of investing in the type of systems development? And frankly, the difficult work of actually measuring, as you said, mm. where the balance lies between um, the benefits secured by tourism development right. um, against the costs of, of, of the very development you're now yeah. seeing. Yeah,
0: and I guess, so is it fair to say that perhaps we're in the position we're in at the moment in travel and tourism because, like, for that very reason you outlined, being that the indicators of success, for lack of a better word, or growth, have been purely economic. So it's kind of, there's no real threshold, like, especially if we're supposedly operating in, like, a free market economy kind of global paradigm. There's no, like, you just go until consumption kind of, uh, you know, until saturation point, I guess. There's no no limit
1: Yeah, there's no other
0: ways to measure
1: show value. We don't really think. I mean, even as travellers, right? When you go on holiday, you're Mm. not really thinking about your social, economic, or environmental impacts, right? It just doesn't really occur to you when you're hopping on a plane. Yeah. Oh, hey, look, uh, my carbon footprint just went up by 15 times. Right. So a flight from Perth to London, which is I think the longest flight you can do in the world, or was until recently, right, um, was the entire carbon allocation for that person in a year. So you've used up all of your carbon emissions in one plane for that year. For that year. For per person. Per person. So. So that means when I and that's an economy class ticket, by the way. That's not a business class ticket. Oh my gosh. So, if you fly business class, you're using four times as much. Oh my god. Um, if you fly first class, I think it's something like sixteen times as much. So it's if you're flying private planes, it's thirty-two times as much. So it you start to get a sense when you start right. to like break these numbers down of like. How much flying and flight can impact the environment? Mm. But you're also not really conscious of like how our eating habits change. Yeah. So there's this, uh, there's an expression we use a lot in travel and tourism, which is um, "When in Rome." Yep. And what's ironic about that expression is that it comes from Saint Augustine, who's okay, like a Saint from the fourth century, who in presumably in Latin, not in English, but he said, <laughs> um, "When in Rome, do as the Romans do." feel like it sounded lo- a lot nicer in Latin as It well. would have sounded great in Latin. Yeah. I'm sure his friends are <laughs> impressed. And he, he said that, and the idea was you should follow the conventions of where you are. Where you are. As, almost as a form of respect, but to kind of fit in. And that's great travel advice. You know, mm-hmm. he's a saint on the one hand, and he's giving tour guide advice on the other. And yeah, right. He's, he says that, and s- for some reason in the 20th century, we've decided to kind of distort that phrase yeah. to mean... Eat as much as you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Commit gluttony and and you know hedonism. Like be the worst you can be. Be and excuse unintentional. Yourself. Yeah. in some ways. So, you know, when you're at a, a restaurant and so so do you want dessert? Oh, when in Rome. When in Rome. That doesn't
0: follow. It doesn't mean what, what it sounds. Uh, yeah. What Augustine it used
1: to. didn't mean you could have a creme brulee. Yeah. He meant that you know you should be respectful of the community conventions and norms of where you are. Yeah. Um. So. That is a kind of, I think, a fairly decent anecdote for right. how we've, our mindsets are when we go on holiday. And it's it's indicative of well of like the media yeah. around travel and tourism, which yeah. is when you go on Instagram, mm. most of what you're seeing are kind of filtered images right. of perfection when it comes to travel and tourism. Right. You know, these kind of people in baths of flowers that are like perfectly set yes. up. Yeah. And I don't know why that is a thing, but apparently it is. Yeah. Um. And it, you know, you just get this image of oh, well, that's exactly what Santorini must look like. There's no one there, right? Well, of course not, because they've all been edited and photoshopped out. Mm. And so, I mean, even just a couple of years ago, I was, I was hiking in in Cinque Terre in Italy, yep. which is you know near where I grew up, and it's so full of tourists. Mm. And the guy in front of me on the hike, who I was like staring the back of the entire time because it was so crowded, yeah, said, you know, they don't show you this in the in the in the guidebooks. They don't tell you how crowded it's going to be. Mm. Well, no, well they, they don't. wouldn't. Because we don't criticize that much about travel and tourism. If you go, you know, to the nearby bookshop uh, the bookshop, and ask, can I see all your books on travel and tourism? I challenge you to find a book mm. that really takes apart the industry and says, hey, here are all the things that are wrong. Right. And this destination here has all these problems with it. Interesting. We, we don't do that very much. Yeah. And the whole journalistic side of it that is problematic. Mm. Um, but it's also that we don't really want to think of travel and tourism as being like Big Pharma well, or Big oil. Yeah, we, we need don't. a big travel big to, travel, to yeah. rally against, right? We don't like target it like we do. Yeah. Because it's, it's escapism. It's a holiday for us. I was going to say, because
0: uh, I I would I would put forward that there is a tremendous social value that travel has, even just with people and with the relationships that we have. You know, kind of as you were alluding to before, like travel photos and stuff, like they have a lot of social currency with people um, to to portray your life in a certain way to, I've noticed really that a lot of people's Instagrams that I am friends with, like their travel photos, yeah, will normally be of something we've seen before and just kind of as a, a stamp, a timestamp that says, hey, I was here at this time or of a really empty natural space. Yeah. And this idea of, I found
1: something that no one else has yeah. found. So that kind of pursuit of authenticity. Yeah. yeah. And- and uniqueness that hey look at me I'm I'm doing something no one's done. Ironically, if you actually scrape together all the Instagram photos of almost every destination in the world, right? They all look alike. So now we yeah, even take you right. know that those images of people's knees in the bottom of a photo, oh like, over like hot dog like or legs, yeah, hot dog legs, yeah, That's the one. yeah. So like you and then like people holding up the leaning tower of Pisa or yes. people putting their fingertip on the Eiffel Tower's needle, right? Like these type of images are so cliched, mm. and we still keep seeing them, and right. and that is. You know, travel and tourism, as wonderful as it is and Mm. as fantastic as it is for economies or for society or for cultural understanding and kind of mutual respect um, among different cultures, Mm. areas of the world, it has a very, very detrimental impact. And a a huge burden that comes with it for the communities that live there. Right. And, you know, there's a town in Austria that I think has around 300 residents. Okay. And they receive around 40,000 tourists a year. Right. Solely because they look like the town from the film uh, Frozen, from Disney. And even though the town in Frozen is supposed to be modeled on Norway, this town in Austria gets 40,000 tourists just bussing in constantly. And they come in, they take photos, and they leave. Mm And They're not spending money in the restaurants. They're not staying overnight. They just get off a bus, take photos, get back on the bus and leave. That creates huge traffic jams. Mm. The infrastructure, like, you know, the toilets that you have to build to manage these guests and these tourists. So now the residents are under pressure to serve these tourists. In Venice, in Barcelona, you're seeing residents and artisans who've been living there for decades or centuries pushed out because cafes, souvenir stores, um, and Airbnbs and short-term rentals Mm. are pushing up the prices of rent. So they can no longer afford to be artisans and venetians in venice wow, doing okay. what they do yep. They're now the rent's going up so much that okay well i'm gonna have to move and mm. set up my leather craft working store or my paint my painting studio elsewhere outside of the city right so that this can be turned into a, a, a airbnb mm. or Mm-mm. into a restaurant or a cafe and so we're seeing kind of fundamental distortions economically within within communities as well mm. that make it very very difficult to to mitigate against and that comes back to what we're measuring like we don't know some of these things are happening right it's that kind of problem of we don't know what we don't know in yeah, travel and tourism. and there's a lot of that going there's on there's a lot that we don't know
0: i guess i mean if we if we were to try and go to 2019 levels right what does the future of travel look like from that starting point without intervention
1: so if we so let's assume covid never happened okay right and, and where we were Coming into 2019, starting to 2020, which mm. was continued promise of growth. And it's worth noting, like we mentioned like overtourism and crowding and congestion earlier. Yeah, these were problems, but much of the industry wasn't really doing that much about it. Okay. And I, I think like the epitome of this is like removing plastic straws from hotels. Like right. you know, a lot of the hotel groups saying, Oh my god, we removed plastic straws. Mm. Aren't we great? Yeah, I mean, thank God we've fixed sustainability and environmental climate change because you've removed plastic straws from yep. your supply chains. Yep. Like, it is not a solution. Mm. And we still, like, as of 2020, we're still not investing in the kind of systems change right. that we need to be. Even the world's, like, leading tourism destinations mm. aren't doing enough, okay. not even close to enough, on addressing the environmental, the social, and the economic impacts of, of travel and tourism. Right. So we're not really making the changes up until 2019. Mm. We're talking about it. Yep. We're saying it's important to do. Mm. But you're not really seeing massive investment move in the right areas, in the right direction. Right. And so a lot of like, the world's leading institutions, and a good example would be the UNWTO, stated that there is no such thing as over-tourism. It's right. just bad management. Okay. And that implies that you can manage your way out of growth, that growth, unchecked, unrelenting, can mm. always be managed. And I don't think that's true. Right. And a very, very clear case of, of where growth is taking us mm. is if you look at something like the Mona Lisa. So it's the most famous painting in the world, yep. in the most famous museum in the world, Yes. Um, in the most famous city, and most visited country in the world. Right. right? So like the Mona Lisa is like the epitome of travel. Like to It's like
0: a, a flashpoint of just seas of people. Yeah.
1: yeah, right. So the Louvre in 2019 got 10 million people. Okay. And 80% of them, according to a study by the Louvre, hmm. visit because they want to see the Mona Lisa. Right, so that's 8 right. million people you have to get into the museum, right. to see the painting. Okay, The painting is pretty small, right? So if you've ever seen the, Mo- the Mona Lisa, it's like one of the first reactions people give is, oh, it's smaller it's so than small. I thought it would be. Right, And you can't get particularly close to it because there's like a huge glass panel, then mm-hmm. there's a one-meter barrier, then two-meter barrier. So you're pretty far away. And you can only really fit 16, 20 people around the Mona Lisa at any given time mm. to see it. So... How much time is there, therefore, for 20 people at any given moment mm. to see the Mona Lisa? Well, 40 seconds. Right. That's how much time 20 people get to look at the Mona, Lisa. Oh, the Mona Lisa. Or if you want to go to 40 people, well, then you might get a minute. Okay. But when there's 40 people in front of you looking at a painting that small, you're going to be underwhelmed. Right. And so that's why in 2019 the British population, mm. um, and I think it was a, a survey by EasyJet, bizarrely, um, they said that the Mona Lisa was the world's most disappointing attraction. <laughs> and like, how? So how does Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci, like the genesis of modern portraiture, mm. become voted the most disappointing, disappointing. attraction in the world? Mm. And you know that that surpasses a boy urinating in Brussels. Like the and, yeah, and so like right. that statue of little kid yeah, urinating in Brussels. That's right. How is the Mona Lisa worse than that kid? Yeah. So it's it's shocking to me mm. how we can assume that management of that problem is going to fix it. Because the Mona Lisa and the Louvre Museum, they can't do anything yeah. about 8 well, million people wanting to see it. And There's also, only so much space and time in a day.
0: And also the size of the Mona Lisa or yeah. like the actual painting itself. Like you can't make it more than what it is. It's, it's done. No, you, you know? can't.
1: And another example would be Everest, right? So right. 2019 in May, May 23rd, there was a photo taken by, um, I think, a Nepalese uh, mountaineer called Nirmal Puja mm mm-hmm. Who I butchered his name? I'm sure, but he f- took a photograph of 300 people queuing at the summit of Everest wow. in the death zone. So the death zone in Everest is essentially um, the top percentile of the summit, okay. where the oxygen is so thin, the cells in your body are literally dying. Gee whiz. So it is, it is the most dangerous place to be. And there was on 300 Everest, people and there were 300 people queuing. In the death zone. And by the way, it gets its name because it's where people die. Right. And, you know, if you do die in the death zone, you typically aren't going to be brought back down.
0: That's right. Isn't that where there are a lot of bodies yeah. as markers? Like green jacket person or whatever. You know, yeah. There's a few.
1: It tragically, oh. you know, you have these, these awful deaths and, and you can't tell mm. these hikers, oh, well, why not summit K2 or Mont Blanc? Right. Or go somewhere else like Kilimanjaro because mm. they're not interested in summiting the second largest or the fifth or the 83rd largest summit in the world, they want to summit Everest. So it's very difficult to manage that process because you can't summit Everest in the middle of winter. It's too dangerous. Right. So there's a small window in which the the weather, the climate conditions are good enough to get to the top. Mm. And on that day that Nirmal Pusher did it, um, it was the perfect conditions. So everyone went to summit at the same time. Right. And that year, some of these people have been waiting weeks to summit Everest mm. to get that one day where they could do it. Man. And as we're going to see like climate change kick in yes. and natural disasters get worse, you're going to have this convergence of crises. You're mm. going to have the the unrelenting growth, this like, unstoppable force meeting the immovable object of climate change. Right, And they're going to smack into each other at extraordinary speed. And mm. it will happen a lot sooner than we think. Right. We are, as of 2019, we were not far from breaking point in many places. And I'll add to this, mm. we aren't at peak travel, right? We're not at this kind of like, oh, well, most of the world is traveling right, right now. Right, it's
0: only backwards from here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, according to Visa, 9% of the world's population travel. Right, oh. so another way of looking at this, only I think ten percent of the Chinese population hold a passport. That is really hard to comprehend. So four percent of Indian um, people hold a passport to so the biggest two, nations yeah. in the world. So they're not traveling much at the moment right and, and when they start to get access to to you know more flights, cheaper travel, when the middle class of China and India start being able to access mm. these places and start being able to afford to travel internationally, the industry is going to grow and grow and grow. And, right. and that is the problem, which is are destinations developing the sustainable systems they need mm. in time for the pace of people to fly. With COVID, you could say, well, there is this now window. Yes. The question is, will we actually do anything about it?
0: I guess then on that note, then, what do you see as a roadmap out? Or like, do you, is there a clear place to start, do you think? No.
1: No. Um, okay. <laughs> Look, <laughs> that's fine. Like, I, mean, I think it's, it's not yeah. an easy thing to... I, I, I would... So I'm biased. I'm, I I work in data. My company works in, in data analytics and travel and tourism. Right. So Yeah, I would always start with measures. Like, okay. you need to understand the dynamics before mm-hmm. you do anything about them. So right. we need to start measuring water consumption in five-star hotels right. by guests. We need to start understanding food consumption on cruise ships. Okay. Um, the local economic dynamics of, of visitor expenditure in communities. Mm. So, you know, when you go on holiday, are you buying... Um, food from McDonald's, or are you going to a local restaurant? Right. Is that local restaurant hiring foreigners, Mm. or are they hiring locals? Right. And by foreigners, I I don't even just mean people from foreign countries. Yeah. You might mean people from cities and towns nearby who are not local to that community. Yeah. So that can also cause animosity. Mm. Are we including kind of the social heritage of where we're at? I mean, here in Australia, our indigenous Aboriginal communities being engaged enough in the travel and tourism industry, are mm. they being celebrated mm. enough? No. No. I mean, obviously not. Obviously not. So, you know, there's there's a huge amount that needs to be done, but a lot of it just goes by the wayside because we're busy making money in yes. the travel and tourism industry. We're busy enjoying our escapism. And who wants to kind of get involved in the, the kind of hard, difficult side of travel and tourism when it is an escapism yeah. activity?
0: Yeah, right. So I mean that that question around indigenous participation and sort of, um, I guess, who uh, it's my way of kind of saying asking who benefits from the current system at the moment. Considering we talk a lot about the economic value of travel, my sense is that that is a pretty the 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 benefits of that are pretty unevenly distributed, right?
1: Yeah, we don't we don't really know. Okay, so. Because we're think, not measuring it. Yeah, we're not measuring it. Right. So, I think there's a lot of anecdotal um, examples in the industry at the moment of where both local communities and indigenous communities have benefited enormously from travel and tourism because it okay. does get money into into areas where no other industry is going. I mean, right. if you're working in working in rural communities in um, let's say Jordan, for example, mm. and you you want to find economic activities to increase their livelihoods, their quality of life, help their children get access to education and mm. healthcare? Well, tourism is a fantastic way of getting money into a community right. while maintaining their way of life. You know, right. you don't have to come in and train them all in financial services yep. or in coding. Mm. Move them to a major city so they can find employment elsewhere. Right. You, tourism can help celebrate a community exactly as it is. You know, that kind of ethereal pursuit of authenticity mm. that yeah. we were mentioning earlier. Right? Instagram is looking for...
0: Like the genuine, like the original idea of when in Rome, where it's like yeah. you do more as the locals do. Like you you kind of adapt to your local context yeah. and nurture and you, that rather than trying to introduce something
1: new. Exactly. Like yeah, it's right. a little bit like, you know, Italy's done, Italy and France have done this very well in, right. in almost celebrating the artisans of their countries. Right. So whether they're wine producers or cheesemakers... Yeah, sure. ...or, or cold carts, or you can go visit uh, prosciutto factories right. in Italy. They do that very well, so they maintain their industry and their way of life while mm. also making that part of the tourism value chain, that right. kind of touristic experience. Yep. Now... That's a kind of fantastic mm. way of doing it. And so tourism is great at that aspect of it. Yep. But at the same time, you have huge hotel groups and huge cruise liners coming in and distorting those economies right. by you know, essentially centralizing everything in one hotel And in case of a cruise ship or a yeah, resort. I didn't even think of that. Or yeah. you can eat buffets. Mm. Where are they getting that food from? Chances are they're not getting it from nearby farmers. They're mm. not getting it from artisans. They get it from industrial producers because volume and economies of scale, you know, getting the cheapest possible unit at the lowest possible cost so that you can make more money off of that item. Mm -mm -mm. So when cruise ships stop in port in the Caribbean, for instance, typically, not always, but normally they're not loading up food from each port they visit. Local
0: producers in each
1: port. Yeah. They get all their food from Miami. They put it on the boat and then they, the ship and they... Boat all the way across the Caribbean. They eat all the food on the boat that was sourced from the United States. Right. So the Bahamian community are not getting those benefits as much as they could be. So now sad. everyone's oh, bringing their own lunch. Exactly. To, <laughs> and their best and way dumping of it, in it in is, their bins. In other clutch. people's bins. Yeah. Is is if you're not spending yeah. in your when you're on holiday mm. in the communities or you know with locals, then yeah, you, they're not getting the benefits of it. Right. So and the same goes for like taxation as well. as like mm. we have tourism taxes in almost every country in the world. Right. Whether that's getting on and off a plane or visiting a museum, the question is: Are the revenues generated from taxation by government going back into the communities whose job it is to preserve those sites? Right. And that one of the major problems of like heritage and cultural preservation, for instance, is money generated. Um, for major sites like Uluru, Mm. is it going back to the indigenous population? Right. For which Uluru is known for? I mean, that is a core part of their cultural identity. Exactly. So is the story that has its value receiving The the benefit of its exploitation? Exactly. Right. And so there's a lot to be done on all of these domains worldwide. I mean, no country as far as I can see mm. is doing enough in this domain. And is there
0: we, anyone doing something we can learn from at this stage? Like
1: yeah, I mean I think there are hundreds of amazing examples right of of where destinations are doing it right. Yep. Or, you know, communities and towns have a, a great system in place or mm. are building the right type of system. So we see this in you know just nearby. We see it in Rotnest for right. instance. The okay. island of Rotnest, yep. which is has a small community of, of quokkas. Yep. For those that don't know what a quokka is, it's a small marsupial. Yeah. It's like a cross between a beaver and a kangaroo. That's a pretty good description. The smiles a lot. And, and yeah, they're cute. Right, they are cute. Yeah. So quokkas and, and the island, about seven, eight years ago, they had about 500,000 visitors. Okay. And today, or 2019, they were around 800,000. So right. just in a few years, they had grown massively. It's like almost half by half. Yeah. yeah. So In anticipation of that massive growth, which even they didn't predict would be that fast. Mm. It it was that fast because of social media primarily and marketing. But they had started to build um, sustainable sources of energy production Mm. that you can measure and monitor on your phone. So tourists going to Rotnest can download an app on energy and see the consumption of energy and and how much is being produced sustainably. So these are kind of great models Mm. for how... Travelers can be more conscious of their environmental output. right? Um, but you could do this for economics as well. Like right. You can do this as a traveler where um, you know that the people you're traveling with, the tour operator you're traveling with, are going to be investing the money that they get right. from the destination back into its community. Interesting. So look for tour operators, for instance, if you're a traveler, that are environmentally conscious, yep. that are economically conscious, mm. that are only using like local guides or taking you to local restaurants. Um, that support their communities, or that hire locals, or that have some social enterprise element to them.
0: That was actually going to be my next question, to sort of, you know, bring us to the tail end. Which was, until we can wait for um, the systems to get their their ducks in a row, so to speak, what can we do as travelers to travel more thoughtfully? I guess so. That's one piece of advice, right? Where it's to actively look for these places that.
1: that yeah. Do that. This is like a good question because it, it's not easy yeah. to travel consciously. Mm. And, you know, there's a there's a movement called flight shame that's growing in the Europe, yeah, for instance, that, yep. that points out that flying is terrible for the environment right. and that we should have greater shame around flying. Mm. Now, that is a, a movement with, I think, a good ultimate cause and purpose, which yes. is the protection of the environment. But it also will have negative implications for countries like we talked about earlier, like Maldives and Bahamas and Bermuda that depend mm. on flights mm. for people to come to visit their communities. Mm. So if we stop flying, well, then those communities go without tourism, and then we have issues there. So it's a difficult balance for a conscious traveler to kind of manage. Mm. And so what I would recommend is don't fly, for instance, right. if trains are manageable for you. Right. Enjoy, try and enjoy a slower journey, and there's yep. a whole movement called Slow Travel, for instance, yes. that you can look into. Um, where you're going to a destination and the journey becomes much more of a part of it. Right. Flying is a pretty awful experience. Like, I yeah. don't think anyone, I hate it. anyone really enjoys flying. Even right? when it's
0: quick, I hate flying.
1: I think quick flight is almost the worst because you have to like spend longer in the airport going through security, yeah. et cetera, than
0: you do in the airport. It's air. actually the airport wait that makes me the most anxious, to be honest. Oh, it's awful. Yeah. And I
1: think after COVID, it's gonna get, that is definitely something that's going to get even worse, which right. is we're going to have a lot more health checks, vaccination well, right. passports yeah. coming in. So, yeah, it, it's going to be more difficult. You, you know, it might be that in the future you won't be able to fly with a, with a fever, that you will not be allowed sure. to board a plane if right. you're not feeling well. So
0: there are still all these impacts we're yet
1: to kind of grapple with. at the Yeah. Moment. Like it's still speculative at the moment. So, so the, to come back to the question of like, what can travelers do to be more sustainable? Well, another thing is review hotels and operators mm. or destinations for their environmental, social or economic systems. Yep. So if you go to a hotel and they are handing out small plastic bottles of water and they leave the air conditioning units on all day long right. review them for that. Yep. Like make Give them lower stars mm. and make sure they know in their review that this is something that matters to you mm. and matters to other travelers as well because hotels, you know, they live and die by reviews. Yes. If, if It's like an Amazon if you find a, an, a product on Amazon at two star, mm. you're not going to buy it. Mm. Well, you're probably not going to buy it. Yeah. The same with hotels. If you hotel gets a lot of bad reviews, yeah. they're going to have to do something about it. Well, you
0: know, people and businesses pay for reviews for a reason sometimes. Yeah. Like for better and for, well, you know, it's not a great practice, but we know that it exists, right? Yeah. So obviously they mean something. They carry Absolutely. a lot of value. So yeah, why not hit them where it matters? And you can
1: also ask... If it matters to you as a person. Exactly. You can also ask TripAdvisor, Booking.com, like the right. big... Review or booking agencies mm. to start including environmental yeah. filters. So I only want to stay at a hotel that is energy efficient yep. and follows certain protocols mm. and you know follows guidelines I set mean, by international in- organizations.
0: That's a really good point, and potentially you could, in- uh, you know, add a filter regarding sort of. Um, Kind of like about that sort of cultural preservation aspect of it or like, yeah. you know, where how it engages with, lo- or, you know, any visible engagement with local businesses or something like that, you know, where it's like, uh, you know, like, f- yeah, trying to find hotels that, yeah, source from local providers, have tour guides that take you to local destinations and local
1: restaurants and and Absolutely. and stuff like that. I mean, the, those are normally the better, better hotels, better experiences. As yeah, well. like, oh, I mean, if, for sure. If travel and tourism is ultimately the you know the experience you're seeking mm. and you want to kind of benefit from being on holiday, not so you can take an Instagram photo, yes, but to actually engage with with a local community mm. or to kind of get in touch with a culture and heritage you, you didn't know existed mm. or an ecosystem you were not familiar with, then what I would always recommend is is make sure you're making choices based on on operators entities that are going to give you that experience and Mm. then review them positively for it Mm. you know give them the support that they need um because that's going to encourage them to do better and it's going to encourage their competition to kind of match their standards and and ethics as well so there's quite a lot of power you have as a traveler Mm. to to do these type of things but it's not It's not not straightforward. It's certainly not going to happen overnight.
0: Yeah, and I guess just as a closing thought, what it sounds like to me, and I'm I'm a bit biased because I I look a lot at social narratives, is we do need to renegotiate what the value of travel is on a story level. Yeah, for sure. What it means uh, with social currency with others or what it means to travel. Like, How can we use the data once we figure out what we're actually measuring to tell more stories of travel that encourage people to
1: travel in a particular way or to see travel in yeah. a different way. Yeah, and I, I Do think, think that's a fair... Comment? Yeah, and I don't think data is going to be critical here. It's, right, okay. we're, we're way behind in travel to Sure. Compared to other industries, we are We know enough to actually behind. tell those
0: stories, probably. Yeah. yeah. Like, tell those... Yeah, I guess to tell those stories properly. We know enough. We don't need too much data. But, you know, people are always wanting some sort of assurance that, oh, I guess I, I, I come from a particular discipline where... People want to see the real world reflected back in whatever story they're consuming, you know? Mm-hmm. So I guess data is one way to do that, but you're right. Like, it's not the, it's not the, we can also just re- rely on people's experience and being authentic and credible about what they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I think
1: we need a kind of combination of both. Yeah. I mean, you need the storytelling aspects, but you also need to kind of validate what you're doing, and destinations and governments need to know mm. that certain systems are working and some aren't. Great. And we need to invest more in that. Fantastic. Well, Ed, we could talk forever about this
0: topic because it's so immense. So I really appreciate your time that you've given us to even get this far into it. Uh, for those that might want to find more of your work, where can they find you?
1: Yeah, we're at um, www.equatoranalytics.com. Okay. Um, you can go on LinkedIn, Instagram, you can check us out. We put out articles every couple of weeks, kind of deep dives into random aspects of travel and toys. And they look
0: really nice as well. Oh, uh, thank you. That's yeah, okay. I really like them. But um, yeah, great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having and me. it Hopefully fun. we'll do this again. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. All right. Thank you. You have been listening to Undesign, a series of conversations about the big issues that matter to all of us. Undesign is made possible by the wonderful team at Draw History. And if you want to learn more about each guest or each topic, we have curated a suite of resources and reflections for you on our Undesign page at www.drawhistory.com. Thank you to the talented Jimmy Lindbull for editing and mixing our audio. Special thank you to our guests for joining us and showing us how important we all are in redesigning our world's futures. And last but not least, a huge thank you to you, our dear listeners, for joining us on this journey of discovery and hope. The future needs you. Make sure you stay on the journey with us by subscribing to Undesign on Apple, Spotify and wherever else podcasts are available.